you know, you could probably put water in the tank of a Honda and it would just keep on doing what it's doing. On this episode of Tuned In, we've got Mike McGuinness joining us from Innovative Tuning. Uh, Mike has been a long-term friend of HPA and he is a really smart cookie in the world of reflashing as well as aftermarket ECU tuning. In particular, he currently is working his day job as a chief calibration engineer for a popular reflashing platform. And in this interview, we get really deep into his background, into how he got into tuning in the first place, his uh, development path in learning the process of tuning. We also talk about in depth the different technologies between reflashing packages and aftermarket standalone ECUs. This is one of the more common questions we get asked which should we choose and unfortunately these days it's a bit of a grey area because there are a lot of crossovers where either option will work. We find out Mike's take on when you should be making that switch to a standalone and what factors you need to consider when you are making your choices. Before we get into our topic today, because we are talking obviously today about tuning, I just wanted to mention for those who have perhaps been hiding under a rock and haven't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school. We specialize in teaching people how to tune with our online video-based training courses. And with our courses, once you've purchased from us, that course is yours for life. You can re-watch it as many times as you like, whenever you like. It never expires. This gives you the ability to learn from from the comfort of your own place and you can also learn at your own pace. For those who go through today's interview and you want to learn more about tuning, uh, we've got a couple of courses that are perfectly suited. Uh, We've got our EFI tuning fundamentals course as its name implies will teach you the fundamentals of EFI tuning, how the engine works, how the EFI system works and what the ECU is actually doing uh, how the process of fuel and ignition tuning is completed Uh, moving on from there we've got our practical standalone and practical reflash tuning courses and as their name implies the standalone course perfect for those of you who want to learn how to tune aftermarket standalone ECUs, reflashing course Perfect for those of you who want to learn how to reflash late model factory engine management systems. Both of those courses include a simple step-by-step process you can apply to tuning any engine irrespective of the engine, number of cylinders or the tuning platform that you are using. Both courses also include a library of worked examples where you can watch the step-by-step process being applied from start to finish on a real tuning job. All of our courses also come with a 60-day, no questions asked, money-back guarantee. So if you purchase and for any reason at all decide it's not quite right for you, that's fine. Let us know. We'll give you a full refund of the purchase price. And as an added bonus for being a podcast listener, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 to get $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course. We'll chuck a link in the description that you can use to get to those courses. All right, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Uh, Whereabouts in the world are you joining us from for a start? Austin, Texas, and thanks for having me, Andre. No problem. Let's kind of start at the start. You've had a lot of experience in the automotive tuning industry, and you've owned and run your own performance tuning workshop. How did you get started learning how to tune, and, and how did that passion develop? Sure. Yeah. I'd say the, uh, the passion developed a little bit before I needed to tune a car, uh, was watching 
you know, racing on TV, went to a couple IndyCar races, uh, late at night, if I was lucky enough, I'd catch, uh, WRC highlights, uh, back in the late nineties. And, uh, I'd say that specifically got me into Subarus and eventually was able to get myself a 2002 Subaru WRX back in 2001, uh, when they first came over to the States. And uh, really how my tuning journey got started was I knew I wanted to modify the car. Couldn't find anybody to do it. So I had to figure it out. That was the deal. Probably actually not too much different to how I jumped in the deep end, built a drag car and really didn't have anyone locally I would trust to tune it. So it was kind of forced down the path of, of learning and definitely dove, dove straight in the deep end with that one. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'd say, I guess my uh, interests and in schooling kind of lent itself to it. Uh, I had been into computers uh, for a very long time, always into math and science, um, had gone to school for information technology. And uh, hey, you know, I could build a website for my store and I can, I know, kind of know how computers work. So let me try to figure this out. And, uh, you know, at first it was just a neat challenge. Uh, something new to learn. And uh, it facilitated going faster in my car. So that was a bonus. And uh, yeah, had a lot of fun doing it. A couple friends kind of saw that things were going relatively well. I hadn't blown the car up and it was getting quicker. And, you know, so I would try to help them with their projects. And eventually after uh, playing with enough friends' cars, I felt comfortable enough to, uh, to start working on cars for folks that I didn't really know and uh, eventually started my shop. Now, you, you just mentioned your sort of background skill set and how that lent itself to to learning how to tune. And one of the questions we do quite often get asked, uh, and this is normally from those who are sort of up and coming, maybe still going through school or looking at college options, what do you think are the the skills that are really non-negotiables for a good tuner? Because obviously we don't have to be an IT specialist. You don't have to be able to build a website to, to tune a car. So what do, you, what do you think are the skills that really are, are essentials? Sure. Uh, I think uh, middle school math. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess in the States we would call it, you know, grade five-ish, uh, you know, you're, just before your teen years, you learn your basic algebra. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you're pretty much set from that side of things. There isn't too much advanced math required of what we do. Um, eventually, if you want to get fancy with data analysis, certainly statistics come in handy. But most of what we do is addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And, and that's really about it. You know? Yeah, right. So um, basic understanding of math and numbers uh, being comfortable with basic manipulation of them. Um, I personally find that pattern recognition is extremely helpful uh, in tuning uh, in terms of uh, either looking at a table of data and trying to understand its flow, you know, either from low engine speed to high or low, low loads to high, and especially looking at logs for, for patterns or outliers, um, things that will help you become uh, not only able to tune the car, but do so more efficiently. Um, yeah, that's, and just, that's a good point. Yeah. Something I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about that. But but you do bring up a good point there with that pattern recognition. I mean, even if we look at a, a fuel and an ignition table and a well tuned engine, 
typically we're going to see a consistent pattern with regard to load and then a consistent pattern with regard to uh, RPM. Uh, a fuel table for for a, another good example there, you can tell a lot about the condition of your fuel system uh, by the shape of the fuel curve. And, and that's something I know that a lot of novices, maybe not that much experience, uh, the key situation I, I see all the time, and it still it, it can catch you out, but uh, you get on the dyno with a car where the, the fuel pump maybe can't quite keep up and maybe you're not monitoring fuel pressure because you don't have that sensor and you get that situation where you know, five, 6,000 RPM just starts to, to taper a little lean. That's okay, we'll fix that. We'll just uh, we'll add a little bit more to the fuel table and after four or five iterations, you've added 30% to the fuel table at 7,000 and you're still lean. And if you actually stopped and looked and you've got this fuel table there, there's, there's no, nothing, no relationship between the fuel table and the, the torque curve, you know, big red flag. So yeah, pattern recognition is, is key. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that, you know, comes with, uh, comes with time essentially, and you build confidence in recognizing that sort of thing. So, you know, where when I started out, maybe I would have gone down, you know, 10 iterations of of making changes to the VE table before I said, you know, this doesn't make sense anymore. You know, today, maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm 5% from where I know it should be. And I'm like, no, I know this engine, this is just not right. Let me figure out what's going on here. So, um, yeah, and, and I think you know, over time, you build up that that bank of data and uh, all of the things you've troubleshot, all the symptoms and how they tie together. And um, again, pattern recognition. You know, uh, whenever these three symptoms occur in the same vehicle, it's probably this thing. Let me go check that out. Um, other than that, uh, basic computer proficiency. Uh, willingness to learn and, and take a little bit of risk because ultimately um, you'll never make any power if you don't uh, take a little risk. But when I started out, I was making changes so small that I laugh about it now. And honestly, like I'd be like, I'm going to change this one cell on the fuel table, the smallest amount I can and go out and drive the car and see what happens, you know? And at the time, it was like, well, I, I can't afford to break this thing because I can't fix it. So I'm going to be really careful. And um, I think I did about nine months of research followed by, you know, probably three months of all my spare time just making these tiny changes before I completed what I would call my first tune for a basically stock car. Um, but hey, taking it slow kept me out of trouble, never hurt the motor. Uh, eventually a few years later when I sold the car leak down was zero to 2% on all four cylinders. And I was a happy guy. This might be controversial. Uh, and I apologize in advance to the Subaru fans out there, but, uh, I, I think it says a lot about the quality of your tuning that you managed to keep that, uh, engine alive, uh, for that long. So good, good job. Well, thank you. Um, and to be honest, I like to think that starting out with Subaru's, is a big component of perhaps what made me uh, unlikely to break things. Uh, you know, uh, they are fragile and there are certain quirks to them. Um, and if you uh, if you do everything right, they reward you. And if you screw up at all, you're going to pay a penalty. And yes. I think uh, that's not, really- not a big safety buffer with those engines for sure. Right. I, I feel like, you know, at the time when I was starting out, the quick cars were, at least in the import world in my area, were the Subarus, the DSMs, and then the Honda guys. And 
you know, you could probably put water in the tank of a Honda and it would just keep on doing what it's doing. And DSM not control on the factory computer was, you know, relatively good. And it's an iron block and they're pretty stout. Yeah. And you had to screw up pretty bad to actually break one. Um, so, yeah, I had to be more careful. I had to do things a little more patiently in the right way. And I think that's kind of carried me through over the years. And I've been fortunate to break very, very few motors uh, without trying to. There's a bunch of stuff I want to dive in and unpack there because there's some real, real good little nuggets of gold in there. So uh, let's just start with the Subaru engine because I've tuned uh, my fair share of them over the years in, in various forms. And one of the common failures we see with the Subaru engine is, is a bearing failure, uh, typically big end. And there's a variety of, of aspects that go into this. Obviously, some is lubrication related. But uh, at least from my perspective, I see a lot of these failures are the result of uh, ex- excessive ignition timing resulting in knock. And basically, you've got that explosive force hammering down on the top of the piston, gets transferred down through the connecting rod and then into the bearing. And the problem being that there isn't a lot of bearing surface area in the Subaru engine. So you don't have a, a huge margin there. But interestingly, I don't know if this is a JDM tuning thing. Obviously, here in New Zealand, we we primarily get the Japanese domestic market Subarus. And and I have literally tuned engines that were a 1,000 kilometres old, off the showroom floor, zero modifications. You put them on the dyno, and they are pulling timing with knock retard. And and I I see this with GM as well, with their LS, LSA, It baffles me as to why a factory calibration is so aggressive to start with and reliant on, and this is on a good quality fuel, or at least as good as we can get in New Zealand. Does that sort of back up what you see with the US domestic market models as well? It does, yeah, certainly. Um, And especially with the latest generation of direct-injected turbo Subaru motors, uh, which are higher compression and incorporate uh, EGR system, which adds uh, a significant amount of heat to the system while it's cruising. You see quite a bit of knock. Um, On those, uh, we also run into some false knock caused by the AC compressor clutch kicking on, um, which if you monitor it, you'll see uh, a nice dip in feedback knock right when the AC clutch kicks on repeatedly. And, um, you know, so we've got a combination of real knock and false knock on those. And, um, you know, Subaru's technology has certainly advanced over the years, but um, they always seem to be somewhere in the ballpark of five plus years behind uh, a lot of the competition. And uh, I think what they're trying to do, especially with the EJ engines, is really just keep alive this motor that's been around since around 1990 uh, and, and, you know, put a Band-Aid on it here and there to meet the latest emission standards. So it's asking quite a lot at this point, and I think they have to push it right to the ragged edge of knock all the time just to meet those emission standards. Sure. Okay, that, that sort of segues nicely into another topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which was knock control. Uh, I've got a couple more bits I want to come back to, but let's just talk about knock control in general anyway. Uh, out through our courses and the eight odd years that High Performance Academy has been around, I've been a big proponent of audio knock detection 
And that really came from my 15 odd years running a performance workshop. And with very few exceptions, I, I would I would pretty much not tune an engine unless I had audio knock detection on it. There are some exceptions where I'd just known and proven over multiple vehicles that the factory knock detection worked and I could trust it. But I have had situations where factory knock control uh, this would be late model Mitsubishi Evo and Subaru, uh, where we would either get false knock, as you're talking about, so that the timing is being pulled when knock is actually not occurring, which is safe but hurts our power, uh, or the more dangerous situation, which fortunately I didn't see too often, where uh, I could audibly hear knock occurring with my headset, but nothing's being reported now that's scary as a tuner because if you're relying on that knock feedback on your laptop you're not getting any so well great if it's still making power let's feed it some more timing and uh, all of a sudden that doesn't end too well uh, you know what's, what's your take on on your own strategy with using an external audio knock detection system versus factory sure i i would say anytime i can have additional data i'm all for it so uh that's just kind of a general rule for me you know if i can have uh, that additional sensor, uh, I will never turn it down. Um, and I think uh, in terms of when I use it, a lot of it comes down to the application and how modified the vehicle is. So if it's an application that I've tuned uh, a great number of times on a very common uh, mechanical configuration that's not heavily modified, uh, typically it's something that you know maybe I'll investigate on uh, one car for a period of time and then take that knowledge and apply it to the others, maybe in terms of dialing in the knock sensitivity as needed. Um, but I probably wouldn't instrument each individual vehicle. And then if I'm dealing with a more of a one-off application, something more heavily modified, uh, I love to have that. Um, some of it also, I think, comes down to the ECU that I'm dealing with and what type of signal processing and uh knock detection options it has. So for example, if I'm dealing with a Motec M1 and I can have four different frequencies monitored and you know I can really um, get a pretty good picture of what's happening uh, in that way without listening to it, I might go that route. Yeah. And you know, perhaps if I'm dealing with an ECU that's less capable in that department, then audio uh, is all I've got and I've got to use it. Yeah. Yeah, some good points in there. I, I mean, I've got a, a fair bit of experience with the FA twenty, so slightly different uh, Subaru engine, but you know, still same same, and the Motec M one there as well. So I just want to talk about that. But one one of the problems we do quite often see with late model vehicles is it's getting increasingly difficult to find a suitable location to fit an external knock sensor or an additional knock sensor. And you know, if you want good results, ideally you want that knock sensor placed on the block and relatively close to the deck surface and obviously that's just not always an option so I, I think you know, that can be where a lot of tuners maybe uh, want to get a little bit lazy and you know sort of shortcut that because oh, it's just it's just too hard but uh, for me again with few exceptions uh, it's just a non-negotiable. Um, moving on to that that Motec M1 and again it's a platform I've had a lot lot of experience with on our FA20 we've had that computer in the car for probably six years now and uh, that was actually interesting because previously that had been tuned using a Plex knock monitor and uh, basically the the complexity of the 
the uh, MoTeX strategy and the ability to really pinpoint individual frequencies, I actually managed to refine the, the ignition table quite significantly and make quite a bit more power uh, thanks to that knock control. We actually found on that particular engine, it might be peculiar, uh, we got a better result in terms of uh, noise signal-to-noise ratio by using a, two different frequencies. One bank of cylinders actually responded at a slightly different frequency to the other. So when you're starting to get that granular uh, it's an exceptional technology and allows you to push the engine harder and we get to that point where we may be running slightly different ignition, ignition advance on, on the different cylinders as opposed to an across the board. But of course not all knock control strategies are created equal. So uh, some of the systems, uh, I think probably pretty much what you're alluding to, maybe I wouldn't trust quite so 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 much. Is that sort of reasonable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you brought up something that I found uh, interesting with the M1, which is um, in the past, when I had tried to uh, define the knock frequency I expected to see based on a bore size, you know, I can calculate where I expect it to be. But on the M1, I'm curious if the frequency you ended up using was calculated that way or was somewhere else. Because I found on the the GTR, uh, that method didn't seem to work out so great. And I ended up having to, to kind of poke around and, and find where the noise was. No, I, I agree, actually. So, I mean, my applications with the M1, and, and they're not significant. Obviously, I don't do commercial tuning these days. So uh, we, we don't have the exposure to all of the cars I used to tune. Uh, but first of all, I'd say that I think it's every single one. I end up at the second harmonic of the the knock frequency. So... Uh, let's say you calculate that out, and for those who aren't aware, the the frequency that knock will occur at, that's important because it allows us to focus the knock control strategy just on that frequency and basically ignore all of the background mechanical noise that's occurring at frequencies everywhere else. So that really helps improve the system's ability to pick up knock and ignore the other background noise. So that's the first thing. Uh, there's a few factors that drive into that, but uh, uh, the, the primary driver really is based on the bore size. So there's a calculation that uh, you can come up with that frequency and let's say it works out to be uh, 6.5 kilohertz. Uh, so typically, yes, you could use that, but there's a lot of uh, noise at that frequency and going to the second harmonic, which is simply double that frequency or 13 kilohertz, that generally is going to give you a better signal to noise ratio, but uh, I think what you're saying is what I've found as well. I, I would, the MoTeC has four different frequencies that can be simultaneously monitored. And we might sort of start, if we calculate it, let's say it's going to be 14 kilohertz, we might start at 10, 12, 14, and 16 and purposely make the engine lightly knock. And then you can instantly see which which of those four frequencies is giving you the, the better variation between that background noise and when knock occurs. And then you can sort of start diving in a little bit deeper, bringing those split points down. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've found that it, you know, the calculated frequency is probably a good place to start, but you might not, not end up being exactly there. Sure, and I think your bank-to-bank -bank, uh, example is a perfect one. You know, uh, If you're seeing in the same motor with the same, hopefully the same bore size on both sides of the engine, um, that you needed two different frequencies to get the best reading, then that's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. All right, let's sort of... Circle back to, to something you said earlier, which really come down to your own experience learning on, on your Subaru and the fact that years on, the leakdowns were still perfect. So th this is something we quite often 
hear from the audience, from our members, and just generally when we post anything on our social media, is that we have to break engines in order to learn how to tune. Uh, I'm interested to hear your take on that because I've got some pretty strong views. That sounds expensive, Andre. Um, <laughs> Doesn't it? Man, wow. Uh, you could get a lot of HPA VIP memberships uh, for the cost of an engine, right? So, um, yeah, it, at the time for me, it, it wasn't an option to break it, like I said. So yeah. uh, I had to be cautious and that served me well. Um, being cautious and take your time, um, nine times out of 10, you're going to be all right. Um, if you're trying to tune something really heavily modified right off the bat and you're on a standalone and you're starting from scratch, um, you've definitely jumped off the deep end. And uh, I think you're you're putting yourself more at risk of heartbreak. Um, so, I mean, my, my personal suggestion would be if you can start with something uh, reflash based where you're starting with a factory tune that people spend a great deal of time and effort on and your vehicle is ideally completely stock mechanically, start playing with that. You know, uh, you can learn so much uh, on that setup. And if the car has decent factory knock control uh, without getting yourself into trouble. So um, I think that would be a great way to start. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to, you know, maybe you have to break stuff to find the absolute limit of a motor someday. Um, but chances are, if you push it really hard, you're going to break things far before uh, where they should break uh, until you've really got a lot of time under your belt. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that pretty much mirrors my, my stance on it. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember how long it was between me starting tuning and, and actually having my first, what I would call an engine failure. And I also want to clarify you know, we, we hear uh, about engine blow-ups on the dyno. And, I mean, there's two different failure modes, as I put it, as I see it. One is a genuine tuning-related failure. The tuner put too much timing in, ran the engine into knock, and it failed. Or, alternatively, the air-fuel ratio was too lean. You know, those are things that, almost ir- irrespective of the car or engine you're tuning, for a competent tuner, that, that is not something we should be doing. But the other failure mode, which is more common that I see, is where there's been a mechanical part failure. And that comes down to a couple of things. I think an understanding of where the limits lie for a particular engine. And if you're dealing with something popular, that's not hard to find. You know, the, the, the path with the EJ has been trodden a hundred million times before and it's pretty well understood at what power levels you're going to need to start upgrading parts. Um, you know, where where we did see the occasional failure, and they are still very few and far between, was with our 4G63 drag engines. But you know, we had a number of customers that were pushing for records on the drag strip. And you know, when you're in that situation, yeah, you're, you're pushing things to a place that people haven't gone before or not many people have gone at that point. So you know, that's where some failures may occur. I think what you also mentioned there is, is absolutely right. When I started learning to tune, it was on a naturally aspirated 3-litre BMW straight 6. And I don't think I could have broken that thing no matter what I did. You know, it, it's relatively low specific power level. It's not very stressed, so it's safe as houses. It, these days, 
you know, availability of turbocharged engines where people can come unstuck is jumping in the deep end and trying to tune a, a 1200 horsepower 2JZ. And while I would say it is possible, your tuning window becomes so much narrower that you put a foot wrong and you're, you're going to have a bad day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that really segues into uh, one of the most important lessons I felt like I learned uh, at my shop, fortunately, early on, which was if something's over your head, uh, just don't take it on. You know, uh, you're not doing uh, the customer any favors uh, by taking on a project that's over your head. And I I think, um, you know, at least for folks who are getting into it to do this as a, as a career, um, you know, those types of jobs can be really enticing. And, you you know, you're, you're thinking about, oh man, people are going to see, I tune this really wild thing. This is going to be great. But, uh, you know, if the result isn't positive, then um, you're not better off. The customer certainly isn't better off. And then uh, really it's, uh, it's on your hands. So um, yeah, I think that's, a great lesson, which is, you know, I don't want people to be fearful and, and never uh, push themselves and learn and grow, but um, hopefully in incremental steps rather than trying to make big leaps into uh, projects that are way beyond something you've done before, unless it's your own car. And, uh, and that was what I always decided to do. If there was a new ECU I've never tuned before, I don't know anything about it. I'm going to put one on my car and I'm going to spend a week or two and I'm going to figure it out. Or, you know, if I didn't know what the uh, what the limit of the EJ25 was when that came out. So, you know, and, and also to be fair, I was tired of Evo guys saying, you know, we can run nines on a stock short block and Subarus are junk. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go do that. And first night out, ran a nine. So uh, and didn't break it. Um, so, you know, that gave me a, a more full picture of. When everything's right, when the engine's not overheating, when your charge temps are appropriate, you have the right octane, you have a, a proper tune on the car, you know, these engines actually can handle quite a lot. They're just not going to allow mistakes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that really comes back to what we were saying before. I mean, you, you keep the thing away from knock and, and do your job properly, and, and it is going to reward you. I think the other thing you've said there which just really makes sense almost irrespective of of what you're doing is just building up slowly gaining the knowledge uh, getting your runs on the board and you know the the old saying it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert and and there's no real way of of shortcutting that I mean obviously we, we produce courses that will teach you how to tune and we're very open that the idea behind that is to get you up to a base level of knowledge and give you a a good sort of roadmap to follow in order to tune an engine. But ultimately, we're also very open that beyond that, you still actually need to go out there and tune engines and build experience, which comes back to what you're saying earlier about, you know, you've seen the same thing three times you know, in the past. So chances are now I know what that problem is. So I think that's really important. And these days it is so enticing to just jump in the deep end on that, on that high-powered build. But uh, it, it, it's a very easy way to come unstuck. I think the other thing I wanted to mention here is there's a bit of Dunning-Kruger sort of effect comes in as well, which is, for those who don't know, you can Google that, but basically, uh, you know, he's coming into something with zero previous knowledge. 
there's a huge learning curve ahead of you and the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically as you start getting a little bit of experience you, you instantly think you're, you're an expert and you know everything and, and you know, the more you learn the more you realise you don't know uh, you know, the old story you, you don't know what you don't know when you get started and I think you know, it's important to recognise that so you don't get too big for your boots and try and do things that are beyond your skill set to start with um, but it's also actually really rewarding which is why 20 odd years later I'm still really passionate about the industry because you literally never stop learning so I think it's really important to have a humble approach and understand that you don't know everything and you're never going to know everything have an open mind and always keep learning absolutely um i mean at, at my age i i think of it as uh i'm either learning or i'm forgetting uh, realistically both are happening at the same time right i'm just uh yeah. I, i'm trying to offset what i'm forgetting uh by learning new things and you know like you said that keeps it new and fresh and interesting um and uh time moves on the technology moves on you got to stay up to date so i'm always excited to learn new things Right, well, let's talk about technology seeing as you raise it. We've both been in the tuning industry for a fairly long time and obviously what we had to start with versus what we've got access to now, and I'm talking both uh, the aftermarket ECUs, the factory engine management systems and reflashing software as well as the engines themselves have vastly improved. If you could pick a couple of key aspects that are allowing you to do things you simply couldn't do back when you first started, what, what would they be? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I would say on the reflash side of things, um, there are a great deal more options for custom functionality. Um, you know, for example, flex fuel on a vehicle that didn't come that way, or a, a speed density strategy on a vehicle that came with a mass airflow sensor from the factory, um, and, and those types of things are really uh, open big doors. Uh, for a whole lot of projects that would have required standalone ECUs in the past. Yep. Uh, also, I would say uh, the data analysis software that I use, uh, even the stuff that's super cheap that anybody can get, like Megalog Viewer, for example, um, saves me tons of time on things where, you know, in the past, I used to get a CSV and I'd open it in Excel and, you know, I had made some some macros and whatnot, but uh, between what was possible there and uh, also the logging rate. Um, you know, sometimes I was dealing with one hertz, and if the car made 500 horse, the whole full throttle pull was like six lines on a spreadsheet. And yeah. good luck figuring out what happened. You know, yeah, a lot of a lot of time, a lot of things can happen in the time between two samples at uh, at one hertz. Yeah, absolutely. Um, other than that, I would say uh, never being concerned with the amount of data I'm saving on my laptop. Just something as simple as that. You know, I have all of the logs from all of the cars uh, over a long period of time on my laptop now, and it, you know, it's fine with it. So that's yeah. been nice as well. Um, and then in terms of uh, standalones, um, I would say. The hardware hasn't necessarily um, unlocked tons of doors, but advancements in software and firmware certainly have. I mean, just like I mentioned, custom code advances on Reflash on the standalone side, they're doing the same thing. And uh, what's possible these days, uh, like, for example, on my 
my car, I, I run pump gas in the stock tank and ethanol in, uh, in a fuel cell in the trunk. And at a certain boost level, you know, the system switches over seamlessly. Nobody could ever feel where or when it happened because it just works that well. And, you know, I didn't do anything magical. It's just built into the firmware. So uh, that's the type of thing that, that really just wasn't possible with what I had when I started. Yeah, I'll, I'll add a couple there. I, I completely agree with everything you've said, particularly with, with reflashing, and I'll get into that in a bit more detail. I just wanted to add a couple of things from my own perspective that I've seen with the ECU, the aftermarket standalone world, which was for a large portion of my career the bread and butter stuff that we were doing every day, is um, more inputs and outputs. Uh, the, 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 the computers to start with were very, very basic in what they could control. And that's all they needed to be. But uh, one of the big things is now just about any decent middle-of-the-road standalone is going to either have uh, onboard wideband controller or the ability to easily integrate with an external CAN-based wideband controller. So I tuned for years where we would have wideband data when we're on the dyno and we would uh, road test the car with a, a, a portable wideband meter, but that was it. The, the issues just didn't simply have the functionality unless you're looking at something super high end. Uh, and that, that, that works, but you don't have the ability for the issue that then A, data log out on the road or the racetrack so you can see what's actually happening in the real world and B, uh, run closed-loop fuel control as required to make those small alterations if something isn't quite right. So generally, at least my stance was I tended to err on the side of a little bit of caution and you know, if anything, you'd, you'd tune just a touch fat just to, to make up for that. Uh, not control, obviously another one very similar. Uh, we were tuning engines where we would use audio knock detection on the dyno out on a road test, but then you're kind of blind once the customer left the shop. And, you know, it only takes one bad batch of fuel or maybe you just hit some freak conditions in terms of temperatures and pressures that you couldn't replicate on the dyno, runs the engine into knock and, and that could end up doing some damage. So uh, I think a lot of tuners believe that knock control is just a replacement for them doing their damn job properly. That's not the case. There's a safety backstop there in case something goes wrong. So those are probably the two big technologies i mean we've also had variable cam control and drive-by-wire throttle which is now pretty much you know across the board but um yeah i I think it's become an exciting time to be involved in the in the industry for sure with the technology that we do have at our fingertips yeah i agree and and out of what you touched on uh i'll just go on to say that uh the proliferation of can based options has been incredible over the last few years and I mean, the doors that that opens up are enormous. And um, I think we're just really at the tip of the iceberg for what's possible uh, with CAM. And uh, tons of traditional analog devices are being adapted to provide data over CAM um, and the ability to quickly and easily uh, add on modular devices is just really exciting. I like particularly the fact that can, given that it is a defined protocol for communication, means that we're no longer locked into using all products from from one manufacturer. 
and, and that can be helpful. I mean, it's pretty common these days to see a car with X brand of ECU controlling the engine and then a different brand of uh, power distribution module and the two seamlessly talking via CAN and then both of those modules then sending all of their data to a third manufacturer's dash for, for logging and display purposes. So it is really powerful you know, once you understand the the requirements and oft, often as far as the tuner is concerned is literally choosing the correct temp, template from a drop down menu so it doesn't have to even be daunting absolutely yeah i think uh templating plug and play solutions all of these things bring these items to a broader audience um and it being an open format like you said it just uh it makes it enticing to a very large market so there's uh quite a lot of suppliers that are producing can enable devices um, and, uh, I know on mine, uh, I also use that to expand the IO. So as you mentioned, newer ECUs have more IO. I still manage to max mine out, just add on a can based expander and I've got, you know, 20 more inputs and here we go. I can get all the data I want. It's great. One thing, last thing I'll point out with the, the can based inputs as well. And this is something that really frustrated me with, uh, wideband controllers that were analog based and uh, I had a number of vehicles back in the day before these CAN based controllers where we would use something like let's say maybe an Innovate LC1 or later on the LC2 which would output a 0 to 5 volt signal and they're so sensitive to ground offset that if you've got anything going on there uh, you, you just can't rely on the data and particularly when it's something mission critical like air fuel ratio you, you need to know that if you're seeing 0.88 lambda that that is actually what the engine is running uh, so yeah when you go to a CAN based the integrity of the data is guaranteed we're not going to be influenced by these ground offsets that analog voltage uh, controllers are so prone to so I think that's really important and and it's very easy for people to overlook as well when they're making their choice. So I've got to ask, how did you address this? Because uh, what I used to do, and I guess it's really not too long ago now, was if they had a analog wideband like that, uh, particularly if it was one that didn't have a dedicated sensor ground and was going to have some sort of offset, I'd tell them, all right, here's what I want you to do. Go out on the road, have a buddy hold a camera, and I need the, your buddy to get the tachometer and your wideband gauge, both in view of the camera and in focus. And I want you to do a pull and data log it, and then send me the video and the data log, and I'm going to match them up and see how wrong the wideband data is. <laughs> it was absurd, right? Yeah. I mean, surely you must have done something similar. Hopefully it was a little well, less I, ridiculous. I, I think I, maybe I, I came across a, a simpler technique. So uh, I know at least with the LC1 and LC2, you could program those things to output a fixed voltage. So what I would do is output 0.5 volts and then I would bring that in as a general purpose voltage to the ECU and obviously it should be 0.5 volts but it normally wouldn't be but you would see what the voltage offset was and I'd do the same at 4.5 volts. So basically I could then build that voltage offset into my calibration table uh, but the other way I would go about that is uh, on, on our own dyno we always had a MoTeC PLM fitted to the dyno and I'd use that thing forever. So I trusted it implicitly and I knew if I tuned it X Lambda, you know, the, the, the engine was going to live and it was going to make good power. So 
you know, calibrating basically the, the onboard wideband and the analog voltage offsets to sort of match that, that was kind of my, my way Perfect. around that. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Um, I guess in the scenario I was talking about, this is a common scenario for e-tuning a car, right? So sure. you're not there with the car. They don't have, uh, any sort of reference point and they're just, you know, they're going out on the road. So we do the best yeah, we yeah. can, but yeah, like you said, fortunately, CAN takes all the guesswork out of that uh, as an intermediate step. Um, some uh, newer wideband's came out, uh, like AEM has one, for example, their X-Line, where they have a dedicated sensor ground independent of the power ground. And yeah. when, when wired correctly, you can mostly uh, rid yourself of that offset, but it's still just never going to be as good as CAN data. No. I mean, I think just understanding that, that ground offset is actually a thing and can affect it because a lot of people will just blindly hook up the wideband and assume that it's giving correct data where it, it may not be. Right, let's move on and and I think a natural sort of next conversation is standalones versus reflashing. We've talked about both and back in the day when reflashing first came became a viable option. Uh, it was relatively limited if you wanted to heavily modify your vehicle. It was great for uh, you know, your basic bolt-ons, exhaust system, intake, uh, injectors and a turbo upgrade. You, know, you could cope with all of that with relative ease. But you know, if, if you wanted to get really wild with the, the system, that, that became a lot more complex. These days, as you've kind of already mentioned, you've got custom software patches or re where reflash manufacturers have rewritten the factory ECU code to provide functionality that never existed. You used flex fuel as an example, but launch control, no lift to shift, the, the list goes on. All of these are, are there, adding forced induction to naturally aspirated engines, which begs the question, where does the line now sit where a standalone is the natural option compared to reflashing. And I, I know that you've gone through this progression with your R35 GTR. So let's use that as, as a good example. What, what made you shift from reflashing the, the ECU using COB uh, to a full standalone on the MoTeC? Sure, yeah. Uh, in that particular instance, um, I knew I wanted to gather a, a large amount of data um, to use with partners in the project, like for example, Garrett Turbo. Um, now I certainly could have done that with a dash logger, uh, but really, you know, do I just want to look at the data or do I want to do something with it actively while I'm driving the car? And ideally I wanted to do that. Also, I had it in my head that I really wanted this dual fuel setup, which um, is a bit unique, but um, I like the idea of driving the car on the street, taking it to the racetrack, uh, not having to worry about finding E85 all the time. And uh, also, you know, for example, I went to uh, an event in Colorado for Gridlife Time Attack where they don't have 93 octane fuel. I had to put whatever they had in it and uh, I needed to make that okay. So I have a two, two complete fuel systems on the car. Um, they have uh, one feeds the primary injectors, the other feeds the secondaries, and I can swap between the two seamlessly. So um, I ended up putting, I think, like 89 in the tank for that event. Still ran full power because I have E85 on a fuel cell. So uh, that was one example. Um, another one is safety measures. And a lot of this comes down to 
your particular application. So for example, um, for the Nissan GTR, the R35, Cobb has a great deal of custom features, probably more than are available for a lot of other cars. But eventually, you know, you find you've got something you just feel like you can't live without. And maybe that's what puts you over the top. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe if you have a Toyota Avalon that you've decided to put a turbo kit on, you don't really have any custom feature options or maybe no reflash base tuning options at all. So you're going to make that transitional a lot more quickly. Um, so again, I think it comes down to a bit of what you're doing, a bit of what's available on the reflash side for that particular application. Yeah, I think that that's reasonable. It's very difficult to put a firm line in the sand and say, this is the point where we must uh, switch to a standalone uh, yeah, as you say, application specific, it depends what support is out there. Uh, and I think we also see, particularly when I was dealing with customers, we see a bit of creep in terms of uh, what their aspirations are. So, you know, they get a car and, and initially it's like, well, we're just going to do some bolt-ons and, and that's it. So at that point, if you've got reflash support, it is 100% the cheapest and most cost-effective way of getting a tuning solution most in most applications maybe I can't say everyone but yeah it's going to get the job done you're going to get a car that drives really nicely still in a cold start like factory just easy for everyone but then you know six months down the track oh actually I'm going to upgrade the turbo and uh and, and the fuel system yeah okay cool well, we can still manage that and then you know six months go by beyond that and now it comes back with a roll cage and it's a dedicated race car and they want some more data and, and motorsport features maybe uh, they're going to put a sequential gearbox in it and want want uh, ignition cut closed loop ignition cut gear shift you know these are the areas where that scope creep is is quite hard to rein in at the start because the solution that you offer in the first instance is perfect but if you actually knew that down the track it, it's going to end up a full-blown race car well yeah, maybe going to the standalone right at the, the first instance actually would have made more sense. But um, yeah, that, that, that's generally at least how I see a lot of it, my customer uh, situations going. Does that match your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I mean, I even do it myself on my own car after all these years, right? You know, I, I kid myself, oh, it's just a street car. I'm only going to go this far. And then, you know, a few years later, it's double what you planned on. And it's just how it, how we go. And uh, it's just the way it is, right? But that's the fun of it. So um, yeah, uh, I mean, I think, uh, as you said, pretty much everybody is going to start with a gateway solution, um, unless they literally bought a car to strip it to the bare metal and turn it into a race car on day one, uh, that's where they're going to start. And for most people, that's all they're ever going to need. Um, but, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, under the right set of circumstances, you might need a standalone for certain features. Or what I see a lot of the time is, you know, well, my buddy's car is faster than mine and he has a standalone and I don't. Maybe that's why his car is faster than mine. So I'm going to get one of those. Um, you know, I've definitely seen that. It happens. Um, oh, yeah. I'm glad you actually brought that up because the next question I was going to ask, yeah, if we're dealing with, a, a, because this is a, a question I get often asked is if we're dealing with a car where we're still within the scope of what we can actually manage on on a reflashing solution and we switch to uh, a full-blown standalone with the same boost levels let's say it's a turbocharged car uh, are we going to instantly see a big pickup in power going to the standalone 
not unless you switch tuners or uh, happen to make some other change at the time. No, I mean, it, it should be exactly the same. And, and honestly, when I switched my car over, I effectively tried to, you know, copy my timing map over and, you know, make my V table start reasonably the same. And, you know, sure enough, the car fired up and ran and drove similarly um, as it should be. Right. Um, and I think that's one of those things that really reinforces a uh, foundational concept that all of what we're doing here with tuning should be uh, mathematically logical and predictable. And uh, there's really no reason why uh, holding the injector open for X number of milliseconds on one computer should be much different from another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think the thing that's easy to overlook is we are only dealing with a handful of, of parameters. Uh, obviously, with our modern engines, there's a few more that have crept in. But essentially, no matter what the platform is, if we give X amount of fuel, uh, X amount of ignition timing, uh, some semblance of cam timing and drive-by-wire throttle position, for all intents and purposes, uh, there's no real reason why one platform is going to deliver more power. Uh, there's no magic here and you also mentioned taking it to another tuner uh, and, and I know as tuners we're sensitive little souls and everyone wants to think that uh, they're uh, they're superman and then the reality is it's it's not really the tuner that makes the power our job is just to deliver the engine what it needs and the amount of power that the engine is going to make is defined by the mechanical setup of the engine so we're just there to basically provide that so the situation where you know you take your car to one tuner, get a tune, and go somewhere else, and all of a sudden it makes another two hundred horsepower. Well, that doesn't actually mean that your second tuner was uh, was a miracle worker. Probably they just did their job properly, and as long as they weren't cheating the dyno figures, probably means that the first person you took it to uh, didn't actually know what they're doing. So really important, I think, just to to highlight that. Um, I just want to come back to this alternate fuel system. So. You've got these two completely separate fuel systems, which I think is relatively unique. Uh, when you're doing this, are you switching fully from your pump gas system at a higher boost level to the the E85 or ethanol tank and just running one system or the other? Or are you basically staging in the, the, the E85 and using both systems? Sure. So there is a period of transition uh, where there is some blending of the two, but it's actually pretty brief. Uh, and when I transition, it transitions fully from 0% E85 to 100%. Um, and uh, I use a shockingly small amount of E85 if I go out, you know, and go for an hour drive and maybe make a couple pulls, horse around, you know, I might barely see the level in my fuel cell move. I'm pretty much just burning gas at all times. So, sure. um, yeah, uh, I forget if I mentioned, but I have mine set right around seven pounds of boost or about 4,500 RPM, whichever comes first. Um, so conditions that you're just not going to see, uh, during normal driving. Um, and even on the racetrack, if I'm doing a warm up or cool down lap, I'll notice, you know, I, the system's barely even coming in. From what I understand, it's not a system that I've actually used the alternate fuel strategy uh, myself, but um, that, that's also compatible with methanol fuel for your alternate fuel as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. And um, I ended up trying a series of four different fuels. Um, tested uh some ignite red and then three different ethanol products that vp racing offers all on the car and 
once you've tuned the car for one of them that you had uh, correct data for, it's kind of like injector characterization where if the data is right, you just change this, the uh, fuel properties and the calibration for the fuel in the tank and uh, you'll be spot on target still. So um, again, you know, you, you set everything up properly and tuning is, is simple math and uh, it should be, should be very predictable. And if something's not predictable, then you know something's wrong. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, it's it's always easy to overlook a, a base parameter, wonder why things aren't working right, and then try and bake in some some fixes into your tuning. But yeah, again, it's just recognizing that pattern that, hey, wait up, something's not right here. This isn't what I'm expecting. Go back to first principles, figure out what you've got wrong rather than pounding away at the keyboard and, and trying to fix it the wrong way. Let's move on a little bit. And, and I just want to get into the future of tuning and maybe more so actually even in a bigger scheme, the, the future of our motorsport industry and the aftermarket. Uh, obviously, things are a little bit different depending on whereabouts in, in the world people are. But in the US in particular, we've seen the EPA really decide to laser focus on the automotive enthusiasts and the performance aftermarket and uh, there's a lot of lot of shops being fined uh, for uh, emissions deletes and and things like that Um, and obviously it is getting harder and harder to to dramatically modify cars and this is also coming into uh, you know with a full-blown dedicated race cars that will never see the street are going to become illegal uh, I know through your work you've been involved with producing uh, emissions legal components that are, are carbon exempt. So can you talk to us about where you see the EPA going and emissions uh, requirements in general and how that's going to impact us? Sure, yeah. I think um, one thing to talk about first, just to get it out of the way, is um, I've seen some comments online and obviously there's a lot of frustration surrounding this because it it might be interfering with people's hobby, um, but individual uh, politicians and administrations uh, aren't really uh, responsible for what's happening. So I'll, I'll just get that out of the way and say that this has kind of been a progression that's happened over a period of many years, uh, multiple administrations, and uh, I don't really see it going away. So we really need to learn to just work with it rather than, uh, you know, putting our head in the sand. So um, what I've been involved in, in terms of trying to do that is, uh, as you said, emissions compliant calibrations. And in the United States, in terms of pleasing the EPA currently, uh, one of the best ways to do that is to get a CARBO. And a CARBO is an executive order. It is not a certification. It is not an approval. It's a essentially an exemption from prosecution. Um, so it doesn't give you the most warm and fuzzy feeling, but effectively it says we've determined that as we see it today, uh, this product or calibration or combination of the two meets a standard that we're okay with and we're not going to prosecute you for selling it. And uh, the EPA's stance on that is essentially – if it's good enough for CARB, it's good enough for us. Um, so uh, on the plus side there, uh, you go through the steps in the process, you satisfy CARB, you get that EO, and uh, you've done your homework essentially for both regulatory bodies. Um, you don't have to do a whole separate process uh, to please the EPA, which 
does streamline things a little bit. And uh, CARB is also kind of working through their processes to try and improve them and streamline them as well. So, yeah. Sorry, I'll I'll just stop you there. So for for those who maybe are from outside of the US, so CARB, uh, at least as I understand it, is California Air Resource Board. And it seems like the state of California kind of took it upon themselves to be the leaders in terms of uh, emission standards uh, and, and brought in these these this carb basically regulation. So it, what you're saying there is, at the moment that's the most stringent. But if you meet that, then the EPA is basically saying, well, hey, if you're good enough for California, you're, you're good enough for the the rest of the states of the US. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I imagine uh, part of the impetus for this whole organization and what they do in terms of automotive has to do with the smog in Los Angeles, right? So if you've ever been to LA, it's awful. Uh, If you haven't, take my word for it. Um, Don't visit. Save a trip. Yeah, go somewhere else. Um, No, but but really, uh, they had a problem. They had to come up with a solution. And whether we agree with the methodology or not, they're trying to do the right thing. And Yeah. um, yeah, effectively... Uh, they put all the time in to figure out what are reasonable standards, you know, what's the process going to be. And, you know, I imagine that took quite a lot of people, quite a lot of money. So other states aren't too keen to go out and spend that money for themselves. So they're sitting something that's already proven and working. Right, exactly. So they're sitting back and saying, well, look, California seems to have something figured out. Um, And based on that, a few other states have now said, you know what, we're not going to bother. If the product is okay with CARB, it's okay with us. Um, And uh, in those states, uh, you're, you know, you're expected to have the EO to sell the product there, not just to satisfy EPA, but to satisfy the state as well. Mm -hmm. And the number of states that are adhering uh, to what CARB uh, has assigned an EO to is growing. And, I suspect that that will continue, um, and uh, I certainly don't know uh, much of what goes on at EPA behind closed doors, but I don't get the feeling they're in any hurry to come up with their own process. I think they're pretty keen to let CARB keep doing their thing. Yeah, okay, makes sense. I, I think it, it's basically a case of you know, d- don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> this, is a, this is the game we're now playing, and these are the rules that we're playing by. So you can get angry about it. As you said, you could go put your head in the sand, but it's not actually going to change anything. So let's embrace it and uh, and learn to work with it. But I think it's also important to understand that working within those uh, EPA or CARB guidelines, not every engine is actually going to be able to be compliant, are they? Like you take your EJ, 20 for example and go and put in a set of wild cams and uh and go and put a big turbo on it and uh, no amount of tuning or tinkering is going to get that thing to be emissions compliant is it no i totally agree um and uh through my time in the emissions lab um i've i've really learned just how small a change can impact you know the outcome of the test so um, yeah, safe to say big wild cams are not going to fly in the emissions lab. And, uh, the option for folks like that is, you know, actually turn your car into a race car. Um, so at this time, 
technically, if the car started out as a production vehicle sold for use on the street, um, they don't have a, a great formal process to uh, permanently, irreversibly turn it into a race car. But from meetings I've been to uh, in person or webinars um, with folks from EPA enforcement, um, they've effectively said that we're not, you know, we're not looking to uh, to to get rid of the guys who are actually building a race car that they drive like once a month, you know, for an hour around a racetrack. That's you know, they're, they're trying to do the most good they can with the resources they have. And based on that, they're going to try to uh, enforce on high volume of vehicles being driven daily on the road. So um, there, the RPM Act is an attempt to formally uh, make it legal to uh, have a race car modified any way you see fit. Never drive it on the street, only drive it off road on a racetrack. And uh, I would love to see that get passed just to uh, to protect racing and motorsports in general. Um, but I think the important thing to understand there is that that's really focused on actual competition use vehicles and not a streetcar that also gets driven at the track on the weekend. So, yeah, for those cars, we still need to play by the rules. And, uh, yeah, as time goes on, I'm excited to see, you know, just how far we can modify cars and get a good result in the lab. Um Recently uh, had a test on a car with the ID1050X injectors, passed with flying colors in the lab, um, emissions similar to the factory car. And, you know, I think with the right parts and calibration, there's there's a great deal possible. So we're just kind of scratching the surface of how far you can modify a car legally. And I think we'll keep going on with that. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's going to be exciting to see what what can be done legally. And, and it kind of like brings us back to the conversation we've had about technology, both with engines and ECUs. And, you know, b- both of those advances in those areas have seen us, you know, be able to do things, emissions legally that, that probably five or 10 years ago, th- there's just not a chance in hell that you would have been able to to get there. So, yeah, uh, the, the rules of the game are changing, but, uh, you know, that that's part of part of life and I think we just need to embrace it understand that uh, this is what we're going to have to deal with in the future and um, and make the most of it and certainly still uh, a pretty exciting time to be an automotive enthusiast as far as I'm concerned uh, look Mike I think we're, we're getting a little bit long here so uh, I want to be respective of your t- respectful of your time so I think we, we will start to, to wrap things up it's been a, a really great chat so far um, one of the questions we like to ask all of our guests is you know, looking back uh, over everything you've done in your career where you are now if you could talk to a younger version of yourself before you started down this journey, is there any advice you'd give yourself to, to maybe fast track that journey, avoid maybe some of the potential pitfalls you've seen? Sure. Uh, I would say uh, go back in time and convince Ben and Andre to start HPA sooner, right? <laughs> now, I, I mean, honestly, the, the biggest thing for me was uh, finding quality information on engine calibration was very difficult when I started. Um, and as I think back on it, even a few years in, I realized some of the books I've read had some actually pretty significant errors in them, um, based on things I'd later figured out. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I had more access to perhaps a mentor, uh, since, uh, information 
wasn't super readily available on the the internet or uh, in books. Um, I wish I knew who the right people were to maybe, you know, go spend some time with them uh, and, and learn from from what they've learned. Um, but uh, on the plus side, I get to do that for a few people now, and it's you know it's tons of fun watching uh, friends of mine you know, get in tuning their own cars and giving them little tidbits on the way, but, you know, kind of seeing them go through that journey and how much fun it is. No, I appreciate the, the free park there, Mike. Um, <laughs> and honestly, the, the whole impetus behind High Performance Academy and the path we've gone down was because I saw that hole in the market when I was learning how to tune. And, uh, you know, these days with the advent of the internet and forums and Facebook, there's, there's much more information out there than when I was learning. That, that, was, that was very sparse by co- contrast. But uh, now the problem is actually almost the opposite in that you've got an oversupply of information, which unfortunately 98% of the time is, is questionable or, or hard to trust. So yeah, that, that's what we've tried to create. And uh, I back myself, I think, I think we've done a pretty stand-up job. But uh, yeah, it would have fast-tracked my journey. And uh, I appreciate that you've you've mentioned that. I also just want to mention as well, you know, it just comes back to what I was saying about the Dunning-Kruger effect and, and, and never stopping learning. Uh, you know, we don't know everything. And, um, you know, I, I know there's been a number of times where I've hit you up with questions on Subaru-related stuff that I know you have far more in-depth knowledge of uh, than myself. I think maybe there's been a couple of questions the other way around as well. And, you know, through my professional network of all of the people I meet, the, there's always this to and fro with, with information and, and questioning because, again, no one can know everything. These are complicated vehicles we deal with, complicated electronics. So, you know, understand that and, and build that network and leverage it. It's probably, well, we'll finish with that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, I'm going to throw that in as, as my pitfall since you asked for one a moment ago and I wasn't able to provide one. So pitfall would be uh, being afraid to ask for help because it might make you feel like you're showing that you don't know what you're doing uh, or being afraid to lend help because, you know, you're afraid a competitor is now going to steal your customers with that nugget of knowledge you've just given them. Um, help each other out. And, you know, support and applaud good works of other tuners. It has served me very well uh, because someday you're going to need help. And uh, having those friends out there who have that information to provide you is invaluable. We'll save your bacon. Definitely. And I think in the tuning industry, uh, more than many others, we do suffer a bit from tall poppy syndrome. So it's breaking that down and and, uh, just... Leveling the playing field. There's enough customers out there for, for everyone. Last question for today, Mike. If people want to reach out or follow you, uh, how are they best to do that? Sure. Innovative Tuning on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, to be fair, I don't post a whole lot on Facebook anymore. Uh, or you can go to innovativetuning.com. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much for the time, your time today. Mike's been a really interesting chat. Appreciate it. Great chat, Andre. Thanks for having me. 
right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.